Good morning. My name is Deidre. I'll be reading the text this morning. Um, You can follow along in your scripture portion or it'll be up on the screens. Um, Today we're reading the text Isaiah chapter 2, verses 6 through 22. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands and what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan. Against all the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills. Against every high tower, and against every fortified wall. Against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft. And the haughtiness of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day, and the idols shall utterly pass away. And the people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty, when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs, from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty, when he rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? Thanks, Deja. We're continuing our series uh, called Tried and Truth. Tried and Truth, and this morning's uh, title is Trust. Trust, and uh, we're continuing, as I mentioned, in a series through Isaiah. We're actually uh, chapters two through five is what this series is going to bring us through. And uh, I, um, when I was growing up, uh, I spent my senior year working in the summer uh, with a contractor doing roofs and framing and uh, different things like that. There was somewhat of a learning curve. My dad was a pretty handy guy, and so he taught me a lot of things about building, and so I could already swing a hammer and some things like that. Uh, But there was still a a little bit of a learning curve as to some of the things that I was asked to do while I worked there that summer, uh, anywhere from laying block. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Hopefully it's not one of those Sundays, or it'll be really fun. (laughs) I'll be like... Um, in either case, I wonder what that sounded like to the person listening on the podcast, but um, sorry. Uh, I was, uh, in particular, it was the first time that I ever used um, an air gun, a nail gun. And so I, re- I remember distinctly uh, kind of being given a lesson on how to use an air gun. And uh, a nailer, it's, it's not rocket science, like you squeeze the thing and you pull the trigger. And once it's compressed and you pull the trigger, it fires a nail out, done right? Pretty easy. And uh, so it's kind of explained to me and I'm thinking, all right, I understand. And then he continues to go through, uh, the owner of the company is like, but you need to be careful because sometimes it'll shoot twice. And uh, it'll shoot twice. If you keep it compressed, it'll fire two nails in a row. He goes, so you just need to realize that you don't hold it down and hold the trigger down, just fire two in. So then he shows me. I'm like, yeah, I get it. 
I'm not an idiot. Okay. And, uh, <clears throat> and he's like, so just be really careful with it because it's, it's got 16s in it, which is a framing nail. And so he's like, it's, it's a big nail. You just need to be careful. I was like, well, any nail, you probably want to be careful when you're firing it through the air, right? And, uh, and meanwhile, while he's showing me this, one of the guys that works for him is like, yeah, you can shoot cans too. <laughs> and he's pulling the guard back with his fingers and he's shooting cans. And um, that was pretty impressive, but that's a whole nother story. In either case, uh, he's telling me, you know, you got to be careful. Also, when you're holding uh, a two by four, or especially like a two by six, and you're holding it against, you need to stay a certain distance back because you don't want your hand too close. I'm like, yeah, I understand because we're firing nails. I get it. And so he's like, so just, you know, just be careful. Okay, got it. So we go about framing. It works out fine. All the nails shoot out just as I'm instructed. Uh, no double firing, all that stuff. And so uh, we go about the job. We've had several jobs throughout the summer. And every time we get to a framing situation, he kind of goes through the same spiel. And just like, hey, be careful. Remember, you know, you don't want to hold that thing against there. I was like, yeah, I get it. I get it. And so I'm working on this. Uh, it's like an, uh, an addition that we're building. And I'm kind of up on the top part of what will eventually be the second floor and the second floor ceiling. And so I'm kind of holding a two by six and I'm holding it against the frame. And there's a line in order to make sure, and I'm just kind of giving you the crash course in case you've never framed or anything, you draw with a pencil uh, where it is you want it to line up to make sure it's at the right spot and an X on the side you want it to be on. And so I'm kind of lining that up and uh, I've got the, the, frame, the framing uh, nailer in my hand. And so I'm holding this two by six and the full length of it, I don't remember the actual distance, but it's heavy. And so I get right up against kind of the the two by six to the two by six. And I remember, I kind of hear his voice that my hand's too close. You know, it's like you can almost echo when he says it all the time, all the time. So I kind of scooch my hand back a little bit and I kind of pull it up. As I'm pulling it up, I can't quite hold it where I want it to be. And I'm hanging over, I'm in an awkward position. The weight of the hose is pulling my hand down. It's heavy. And so I'm trying to line it up and I'm frustrated. And so I'm like, this is stupid. So I just kind of get closer to it, pull it exactly where it needs to be. And I fire a nail in, and when I fire the nail in, the nail gun kind of swings out, and of course it's heavy, and so I pull it back up, and my finger's still on the trigger, and it fires through the 2x6, and all of a sudden I feel my hand go and slam against the 2x6. I'm like, huh, that's odd. I wonder, I wonder why my hand just involuntarily slammed against this 2x6. And so I kind of look in, and as I look in, I see blood sprayed up all over the 2x4 and on my bicep, and I think, well, that's unlucky. <laughs> and so I try to move my hand. I'm like, yeah, no, I, I definitely nailed myself to this 2x6. There's, uh, there's no two ways about this. And so I'm up in the air. I'm hanging over the side. I've got a nail gun in my hand, and immediately you kind of start feeling a little bit sick to your stomach. And... And it's funny, in that moment, when I replay that moment, right before that happens, and my hand's far enough back and in a place of safety, and I'm doing something kind of dumb that I should have just got a ladder for, I'm literally hearing his words. I'm hearing what it is that he has warned me about. And in that moment, I'm thinking, what does he know? Right? I mean, he's only been doing this like 30 years. What am I going to trust? Am I going to trust him and his experience, or am I going to trust myself? 30 years, 30 days. I think I got this one. 
You know, like that's literally like when you, when you kind of will, whittle it all the way down and you replay some of the dumbest moments of your life, there are moments where you almost heard advice. You knew right versus wrong. You realized this was dumb. And in that moment, you're like, you know what? I think I'm going to trust myself here. I think I got this one. This is my life, darn it. This two by six is heavy. I need to get closer. I don't want to, but I can. And so... I uh, one-handedly lower this nail gun to the ground using the hose, and it takes a while. And uh, I mean, I have all the time in the world because I'm nailed to the roof, so (laughs) I uh, really am not going anywhere. And so I lower it down, and then I look over for the first time, and it is... It's an incredible sight if you've never experienced seeing something passing through part of your body. You're like, how is there even room for that nail to go through my finger? And like, your finger feels all weird, and it was a great experience. I won't tell you too much about it so you don't vomit, um, but in either case, I'll say this. Like, when you're up there, there's only one thing to do. Um, I cut my finger off. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> like, and so that's the end of the no, story. No, um, I... Uh, I just slowly grabbed the, I grabbed the two by six and just slowly pulled my finger off that 16. And, um, you know, you don't want to go slow, but you also can't go fast. And you just feel that going right through your bones. So in either case, I came down and was like, hey, I just put a 16 through my finger. He's like, yeah, you wouldn't be standing there talking about it if you did. I was like, no, I really did. And there's like blood everywhere. He's like, oh, sit down. You think you're all right to stay here till lunch? <laughs> True story. Anyway. It's a whole other conversation, but, uh, and I was, I stayed. So in either case, um, I have a question that I want you to ask as you consider this idea, this concept of trust. When do you find it most difficult to trust someone? When do you find it most difficult to trust someone? Now, in my opinion, there's really two answers to this question, depending on how you're wired. The first answer is when they've earned it. Okay, so there's some people in this room that the answer to that question is, I, I find it most difficult to trust someone when they haven't earned it, when they haven't earned my trust. Because if you're wired that way, there's some people in the room that don't easily award trust. And so the response to that is when they haven't earned it, because you don't just give trust out like lollipops. Right? And if you're wired that way, you're like, yeah, why would I trust somebody I don't even know? They haven't earned it yet, and so I won't trust them. But there's another type of person in the room. And those that think you have to earn trust probably think those people are stupid or naive. <laughs> but the second person in this room would say it's most difficult to trust someone when they've proven themselves untrustworthy. Now, I don't think that this person is stupid at all. In fact, I admire these types of people. These types of people award trust until someone reveals themselves as untrustworthy. Once they reveal themselves that they can't be trusted anymore. And so you're either the type of person that says you need to earn my trust or you're the type of person that gives trust out and says, you know what, you've proven yourself untrustworthy and so therefore I won't trust you again. Those are the two types of people that fill the room. Slow to trust, quick to trust. But whether you're more similar to the first type or to the second type, both have the same root. We as humans trust whatever we believe will keep us safe. Trust is about self-protection. Think about that for a second. It's, it's not rocket science. We're going to trust 
whatever we believe will keep us safe. And so in moments of concern, in moments of urgency, when all of a sudden you think you're going to fall and a stranger puts out his hand and says, grab my hand, you're not like, is this person trustworthy? Right? You don't go through that process. Why? Because you want to keep yourself safe. And so in moments of greatest concern, you just, you trust. You trust because you want to self-protect. And so there's moments and situations that, tr- that trump our default wiring. Because at the end of the day, trust is about self-protection. You either prove to me that you won't hurt me, or I'll believe you won't hurt me until you prove otherwise. Trust. It's a human condition as old as time, really. And the truth is, it's what has led some of us to conclude this simple fact, that we can trust no one but ourselves. There's some people in this room that would say, I don't even bother awarding trust to other people because people have hurt me too much. And so therefore, I only trust myself. In fact, for some, others' violation of our trust has impacted our capacity to even trust God. We think, is God some mean entity up in the sky just doling out judgment? Can I even trust God? And so trust is an interesting thing because it's so intrinsically connected to the idea of self-protection. And this morning's text is directly connected to trust and how the nation of Judah wrestled with what we wrestle with. Verses 6 through 8 say this, For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. They strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there's no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there's no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols, idols, things that, uh, that you worship, that you put your trust in, right? Your land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. To what their own fingers have made. So they're full of things. They're full of things created. They're full of created things, but they're empty of God. Influenced by what they see around them. They begin to trust in the ways of the world around them. And so you might say, if you read the text at face value, you might ask the question, like, is it a sin? Is it, is it bad to own stuff? Like, it goes through and it says that they have silver and gold and treasures and chariots and horses and all that. It's like, so is, is this why God is, like, done with them because of their stuff? Is it bad to have stuff? <laughs> the Bible's not against wealth. Not against wealth. It's against sin. And so the question concerning wealth have to be these types of things. How did I acquire wealth? Did you acquire wealth via sin? Well, then, yeah, God's got a problem with your wealth. (laughs) Did you, uh, once you have wealth, how do you use your wealth? Do you use it for sinful things? Then, yeah, there's an issue with that. The most important thing, especially connected to the text this morning, because this was the issue with Judah, is Is it, is wealth, my security, opposed to trusting God? You see, 
when, when wealth becomes the, the stabilizing factor and the security factor in your life, and when I'm saying wealth, I don't mean like excessive wealth even. I, I just mean the idea of comfort, the place that you get to where you say, okay, I'm good now. I'm good. I can take care of myself. I don't need to depend on or trust in God because after all, I want to trust myself. I mean, I know better, right? What does God know? It's kind of like that contractor that's been working for 30 years and I've been working for 30 days. God's been around for all of eternity, but I'm pretty sure I know better about my own life. It's interesting, we can laugh about the story that I shared, but when it comes to the connection to our lives, it maybe resonates a little bit too much. We end up with bizarre messes that we're like, wait a second, how did I get here? And we can almost hear the echoes of all of the people that spoke truth into our lives. So, verse 8 says, their land is filled with, with idols. And then it's interesting, they bow down to the work of their hands. They bow down. So you have an entire nation trusting in the created. It's hard for us to connect the dots when we read the text like this in, in the Old Testament. I think it's because there's not a lot of places, and I'm sure that there are places and maybe places even that you're aware of, where people make certain things and then bow down and worship them. It's not as typical as it was then to have actual physical idols that were like, hey, this is my idol. I worship it every morning. I made it on Tuesday. Friday, it became my God. You're like, what? Like, it's just the way I roll. You know, it doesn't happen often in our society. So it's sometimes hard to connect the dots. But what it's really talking about is when it says bow down to the work of their hands, of what their fingers have made, we're talking about the idea of worshiping created things. And when we start to expand our mind to the idea of worshiping created, created things, and we're talking about assigning worth to things that are created above the creator. And all of a sudden, it becomes a little closer to something that resonates with us. Because if we're honest, we're not far off from the idea of, create, of trusting in the created. Trusting in our wealth to provide us stability. Trusting in our boyfriend, in our girlfriend, in our spouse. Trusting in the idea of where it is that our education will get us. Trusting in our job. Trusting in, you name it, the created the things of this earth, the things that are made with our hands. Verse 9 says, So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Isaiah is fed up with his generation, but the phrase, do not forgive them, is, uh, is an imperative in the original text, which is Hebrew. It's an imperative tense that the Hebrew is expressing a threat towards humanity based on the character of God. And so what's important to understand is that Isaiah is not commanding God. Isaiah is not like, okay, so here's, here's the generation that I'm dealing with. And so listen, do not forgive them, God. Isaiah is not commanding God. Isaiah is actually saying, listen, based on the character of God, he's saying forgiveness is unthinkable. In other words, it's not likely, God, that you're going to forgive them as a result of them just worshiping the created things of this earth. It's just unthinkable that you would actually forgive. 
Doesn't that resonate this morning? That we trust in what we see and touch? That we trust in what it is that we've earned? That what this world deems important, we lean into. We lean into so deeply that maybe we wonder, is forgiveness for the idolatry of our own heart even possible? Have I elevated possessions house, car, retirement, whatever it might be, have I elevated it to a point where I literally assign so much worth and so much value that I may in fact be worshiping the American dream over the God of heaven and earth. We're not that far off from the nation of Judah. Verses 10 through 11 speak of how God's very presence humbles humankind, that his presence brings humility, that the earth submits to and declares the glory of God. You know what that means? It means the most direct competitor to the glory of God is human pride. The most direct competitor to the glory of God is human pride, the trust of self. That we're literally saying, God, I I know a little better than you. I know what's best for my life. I know how this story should work out. Verses 11 through uh, 12 through 16 is actually one sentence. It's like this most ginormous run-on sentence. It's actually impressive to me because I am a run-on sentence writer. So I'm like, that is, I get it, Isaiah. Like you and me both, man. (laughs) Just say it all till you're done. And when you're done, just put a period at the end. So verses 12 through 16 is one sentence of how high humankind thinks of itself and how it will all be brought low in all different ways. It's using examples of the culture and the community that would resonate these these places and positions of power, these creations of power, these ships of Tarshish that were so powerful, all these things, just how high we think of ourselves and how it all will be brought low. And then verse 17 says, And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Listen, when, when God's presence is made known, all of humankind will realize they've trusted in the wrong thing. Isn't that interesting? It's kind of a horrifying thought to get to a place where you thought you trusted in the right thing and then you realize you're wrong. It's like when you think, you know what? I'm going to trust myself in this situation because everybody else has let me down, but I know that I won't let myself down only to find out that you're wrong too. Haughtiness and pride in Hebrew actually are expressions of height. Isn't that interesting? Height, that it literally means that they think more highly of themselves than they should. It's kind of a a disturbing, unsettling thought to get to the end of a situation and realize that that which you have trusted in was not trustworthy at all. Verse 18 says, And the idols shall utterly pass away. Uh, Robert Alter, which is a... uh, 
he's a modern day theologian and a, a person that um, interprets scripture as far as uh, does uh, Hebrew interpretation. Translation, there you go, that's what I'm trying to say the whole time, like I am saying that wrong. Translation, he translates the word uh, idols here as ungods. I love that, ungods. And the ungods shall utterly pass away. The ungods, the, the things that we believe are worthy of our praise, that are worthy of our glory, that are worthy of our elevation, prove to actually, in fact, be ungods. Not gods at all. Not worthy of our worship, not worthy of our praise. And they'll pass away. They'll be proven to not be God, to not be trustworthy. Did you get that? Because it's a little bit subtle. But if we can connect the dots this morning, I think it'll be paramount. Judah had decided to trust self. All right? So you see, the conclusion that you and I come to is very similar to the conclusion that Judah came to. At the end of the day, the only person we can trust is ourselves. But that's a lie. Isn't that horrifying to think, wait a second, I can't, I can't trust myself? You see, if we can trust ourselves, it means that we are outside of time. That, we're, that we transcend the situations and the circumstances of our life and that we have the ability and the capacity to stand outside of it and say, I actually see the beginning and the end and I know better. That's not the truth. That's not the truth. And so at the end of the day, when you've leaned into self-protection and when you've leaned into self-elevation and you've thought about, you know what, I can trust myself, you're believing a lie. Because you could be wrong. You could put your trust in something. And at the end, realize that you yourself were not trustworthy. That your experiences, your limited knowledge, and we all have limited knowledge by those that have educated us, by the influences of our familial situations, by the nature of all the people that speak into our lives. We don't have the full picture. We're in the midst of time, subject to it. In that moment, when we turn to self, we become the ungod of our own lives. We say, you know what? I can trust myself. I got this. Come on, what does God know? What does this guy know? I'm the one hanging over a roof right now. I got this. In the moment that we think we can trust ourselves, we elevate ourselves to a position of godlike status. And it's nothing new. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Where Adam and Eve were like, you know what? I think we can be God. I think we can do this. I think we got it. We are wicked. Our thoughts are corrupt. To trust self is to worship self. And the ungods will pass away. 
100% of us are going to die. Well, Merry Christmas. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? (laughs) It's this reality of if we can't trust ourselves, we can't trust anybody. We're doomed. But what if? What if there was one who was trustworthy? What if there was one who never left us or betrayed us? What if there was one that, that loved us even when we hated him? What if, what if there was one that stood outside of time? That not only saw the beginning and the end, but was the beginning and the end? What if there was one that transcended time and instead of watching it as some cruel story and narrative, he stepped in to that narrative. And in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our sin and our wickedness, he said, you know what? I will come and redeem that which you cannot redeem of yourself. What if, what if the God of heaven loved us while we were his enemy? One who called us children in our rebellion and distrust? What if Jesus stepped into the narrative of humanity and lived the perfect sinless life that you and I could not? What if? What are the implications in your life if that's true? If it's true. That Jesus, that God himself would enter humanity and in the midst of our brokenness and corruptness and the end of ourselves and our own unworthiness, our own incapacity to even trust ourselves, God himself said, I am going to live the sinless life that you could never live and I'm going to die the death that you deserve. But the story won't end there because in the midst of the redemption for your sins, I will also conquer death. I will overcome the tomb. You see, Jesus, if that's true, he's the only one trustworthy. He's the only one trustworthy. Verse 20 says, In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, and throw them to the moles and to the bats. They throw down their idols in the awareness of who God is. You see, Isaiah in this text, Isaiah is prophesying that they will recognize the wickedness of their idolatry and they will reject their idols, but it will be too late. It will be too late. That Jesus will return and in the midst of his returning, they'll realize in God's presence the reality of all the things they've worshipped that are literal ungods, and they'll just cast them away into caves in humility and embarrassment. They'll say, oh my gosh, none of this is worthy. None of this is worth my praise. None of this, all of this falls short, and it will be too late. Trusted in the wrong thing. What about you? What do you trust in? You've tried trusting in self. Trust the truth. Tried and truth. There's that which we have tried and there is the truth. 
It sounds like such a definitive statement that almost sounds offensive. Like, wait, so you possess truth? No, what if? What if? Have you considered the implications of the truth of the gospel in every area of your life? Not simply in the moment of crossing the line of salvation from irreligious person to Christ follower, but in the implication of the way you interact with everything on this plane. I think part of the reason why why people that walk the streets of our world look at churches and look at people that profess to be Christ as almost a joke is because oftentimes they are. Because oftentimes they're living their lives exactly like the nation of Judah, worshiping gold and silver and accumulating stuff. And they're like, what is the difference between you and me? Oh, I know what it is. You think you're right. And I'm going to hell. But what if we lived as individuals, those that profess Christ in this room, and I realize there's people all across the spectrum in the room this morning, from committed Christ follower to the skeptic that isn't even sure if there is a God and everyone in between. What if the people that profess to be Christ, Christians that profess Christ, lived in such a manner that the truth of the gospel transformed the way they interact with everything on this plane, that everything was put through the sift of the truth of the gospel, that they literally dealt with their finances, that they dealt with their family, that they dealt with their spouse, their bosses, and everything through the lens that they've been awarded grace that they simply do not deserve, that at their core they're wicked and even untrustworthy unto themselves. And so in the midst of making decisions and in the moments in which words need to be spoken that they consider what it is that they've been awarded, not because they deserve it or because they earn it, but because of who God is and that it influenced every area and aspect of our lives. (laughs) Just imagine. Verse 22. I kind of love the way Isaiah just sort of sums it up. Like verse 22. Stop regarding man and whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? Stop regarding man. They're created. Humanity is created. Stop trusting in your righteousness. Stop trusting in your religious works. Stop trusting in your wealth and your efforts towards health and safety, this idea of self-protection and preservation. I know people that will pursue health. I've known people that were health fanatics only to die in the midst of a marathon. Like, what? How's that happen? They were so healthy. So healthy. That's not giving you permission to be unhealthy. If I was sitting out there, I'd be like, yes, I'm so glad I came to church this morning. (laughs) Donuts for everyone. (laughs) But if, if you get to the place, and you know what I mean, if you get to the place where you're like, you know what? I can escape death almost. I'm going to extend life. How? Well, with my own health. I'm going to earn it. People will be so impressed. You trust in your own efforts. Trust in human pleasures like entertainment, food, Clothing, music. Now, there's two sides to this coin. On one side, you might be hearing me be like, stop everything fun in life. Listen, God wants you to be really bored. And the more bored you are, the more spiritual you are. If you love Jesus, 
let your life really rot. Amen. <laughs> I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that's a perversion of, of what it is I'm saying. I'm saying if we elevate those things to the place that we literally worship it, that we assign worth higher than God, that entertainment becomes our idol, becomes our ungod. That we begin to, to worship this idea of entertainment to where we'll pursue it at any end and to any cost. We'll elevate these things. That's what I'm talking about. A perversion of what God intended. On the other side of that coin, you might just hear me say, oh no, I know what you mean, but you're just saying stop. <laughs> it's just saying stop. Like, I can't stop. If I would have stopped, if I could stop, but I can't, so I won't. Please forgive me. Okay, all right. Too old maybe? I don't know. In either case, if we could stop, then we could just overcome things, right? Just make a decision. I'm going to stop doing that. We don't. In fact, throughout scripture, it talks about how we return to the sin of our life like dogs return to vomit. If you've never experienced that, you might think twice before a dog licks your face. <laughs> we just go right back to it. So how do we stop how do we stop this idea of elevating things? It's simple. We ask a question. How can any of those things compare to what Jesus Christ did on the cross in the empty tomb? Allow the gospel to center our hearts. When we get to a place where something becomes, where a good thing becomes an ultimate thing. And hear that. We have good things in our lives, but when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, it's destructive. Because we literally begin to worship. And so when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, that we would ask ourselves a question compared to what Jesus did on the cross in the empty tomb, what worth is that to me? And allow it to recenter our hearts and minds. It says Jesus alone will be exalted someday. So why not surrender to him now? Why not surrender to him now before it's too late. It's a decision that we each have the capacity to make. But it's not simply something that, that we make one time and say, there, now i am got my get out of hell free card. I spent a majority of my college years, my high school years, thinking, hey, I think I'm avoiding hell. I'm pretty proud of myself. That's not freedom. It's not living in the fullness of what God intended. It requires a daily submission to the reality of who Jesus is in our lives. And to surrender daily, not just one time. But God, would you reorient my priorities today? My heart and my mind, will you help me see between all the things that I've tried and what the truth is, that I would lean into your truth, that you'd give me clarity, that I would be slow to anger and quick to love, that I would function differently, not for the purpose of recognition, but because of who you are and the way it's impacted my life. God, would you transform who I am? We spend so much time praying for the other people in our lives. Well, if you pray at all. I should, let me just clarify that. You're like, no, I don't spend a lot of time prayer at all. But if you're a person of prayer in the room, we spend a lot of time praying for other things to change. God, would you just, would you heal me? God, would you just change my spouse? Would you just change my kids? Oh, God, would you change my children? <laughs> That's not my case yet, but they're still preteens, so we'll see. 
We spend so much time asking God to change our situations and our circumstances, but what if we spent time and energy asking God to change us? Lord, would you, would you transform my heart and my mind? That I would walk through this situation and this circumstance with courage and strength because of who you are. That I would be a literal testimony of who you are and the strength that you provide. Isn't it possible that, that maybe we just want this idea of trust to look like self-protection? God, would you pull me out of the situation? Would you protect me? Maybe it's about walking through the difficulties of life without him leaving our side and realize he's the only one trustworthy as we walk through the darkest valleys of our life. Maybe protection looks more like surrender. We say often here at Centerway that the text requires something from us. That we can't read through scripture and come to the conclusion that it's uh, something that was written for someone else or somebody else that's maybe not present or a different season, different time. The reality is scripture has impact on our lives today. And so it requires something of us. I want you to consider as you leave this place in a question, an application. The question is this, what will I surrender to the Lord in prayer this week? What will I surrender to the Lord in prayer this week? Maybe for you this morning, surrender is really about you surrendering your life. Maybe you've never crossed that line of faith. You've been trying to save yourself in some ways, work out the situation of your life and make sure it plays out the way you want it to play. And so maybe for you, the application this morning is to say, the thing I'm going to pray about is surrendering my life to God. If, you, if that's you this morning, I'm, I'm not here to manipulate anybody or to, to make somebody decide something that they don't want to do. If, if you're at that place where you want to cross that line of faith and make that decision, you can make it right in your seat. You can make that decision and pray a simple prayer. Lord, I know that you died for me. I'm a sinner. Would you forgive me my sins? Come and be the Lord and leader of my life. And in that moment, you take all the ungods of your life and you, you put them second. You lift up the Lord to the number one role and primary in your life. It can be that easy this morning. I'd love to have a conversation if you do pray that prayer to explain what the next steps could be. For others of us in this room this morning, maybe you've prayed that prayer before. If you've prayed that prayer before, I want you to consider what it is that you need to surrender. What is the, the un-God, if you will, the idol of your life that you've placed, something good that has become ultimate in your life, something you've made into an idol, maybe part of our response this morning is to surrender that thing, to put it in its proper place. For others of us, maybe you do live in daily submission to the Lord. You've crossed that line of faith and you continually prioritize your life. And the temptation might be to say, I've got that figured out. And I want to tell you, if you ever get to a place where Scripture has no application in your life, then the issue you're struggling with is religion. And the reality is we always have application. We never outgrow that. We never outpace that. And so this morning, if you're to that place where, you, where it's a rhythm of your life to live 
in submission to the Lord, then I want to challenge you to consider what surrender looks like if you live on mission. What does it look like to maybe surrender your comfort in new and deeper ways? What does it look like to to share the gospel through a spiritual conversation or through maybe giving of some of your wealth for the purpose of leading others to the reality that someone cares about them? Maybe inviting someone to this place or to another place, to a place of worship that they can encounter the God of heaven. So I want to challenge you. I don't, I don't pretend to know what your application is this morning, but I know this. Every single person in this room, myself included, have something that we need to look at the text and say, okay, God, <laughs> wreck me in that. Show me the things of my life that I've elevated to a place that shouldn't be there. Kind of repent. I don't know what it is or where you are this morning but I know God requires something from each and every one of us. If you would, just close your eyes or at least look at the ground just so you're not distracted as the worship team makes their way up. We're going to go into a time of of song this morning and the time of song is for a purpose of response. And so as you consider what your response might look like, what it is that you might have to surrender, maybe this time can be spent by you journaling just sitting in the quietness of your seat and journaling about what it is that the Lord might be laying on your heart. Or maybe the, the time can be spent in, in prayer or in worship. I, I don't pretend to know. Like I said, we just want to provide response. And so as we go into these songs, I want to challenge you to be open to whatever it is that the Lord might be leading you to respond to. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We simply declare ourselves available. Lord, that we would leave this place having had an encounter with the living God. Lord, that we would be forever changed, not because of our efforts, not because of our attempts to stop things, but because of who you are and that which you have already done and our willingness to walk in the freedom that that awards. So Lord, we just, we come before you at the end of ourselves. We say we trust you. We trust you because we realize that we're not even trustworthy ourselves. That when it comes to the end of of time, we may find that we've trusted in the wrong thing, external or internal. And so we declare you trustworthy. We ask you to fill this place with your presence. Hear our worship to you.